Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil, but I hate this show. Bad memories, <laughs> trauma. For me, it's the end of the end for Strike Force. We'll get there. I tried to, I, you know, when I watched the broadcast, I tried to look out for you and me, and I never spotted either one of us. <laughs> Uh, but we were both there. Weren't was, you on press row? Or where I was were you? on press row, and yeah. I just never—I never saw myself. And I remember standing up with my hands over my head when it happened, because mm-hmm. uh, everybody was standing, and you know, but everybody was standing. So, and I'm only five ten, so it's not like, you know, I, it wasn't easy to pick out. We'll put it that way. So yeah, I, I didn't spot myself if I went back, you know, frame by. But I don't even know which side of the cage I was on. I think I was on the far side from where Fedor tapped out. I think. But I, I really, I don't know 100%. So, yeah. Maybe it never happened. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I would be okay with that. I was a fan that night. And if you heard a shrieking cry that sounded like <laughs> a small child, that was me. Yes. All right. Well, uh, let's welcome the listeners to the show. For everyone that, that knows and doesn't know, Inside the Hexagon is about the walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. It's brought to you by Evergreen Podcast. Make sure you check out evergreenpodcast.com. Uh, but on the, on the episode today, we're going to be discussing Strike Force Fedor versus Verdun, in case you hadn't already figured that out. It took place on June 26, 2010 at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California, or as Gus Johnson called it on the broadcast, the Shank Tark, which we'll get to. Uh, this was a monumental event, not just in Strike Force history, but in MMA history overall. And why? It's because of what happened in the main event. But there are actually a lot of things that kind of came to an end on this card, and we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but there were some other big fights on the card. Chris Cyborg defending her women's featherweight title, as well as the rematch between Kung Lee and Scott Smith, which would be which would prove to be Kung Lee's final Strike Force fight, which is one of the things that, you know, again, kind of ended. But again, we'll get to that. And there is lots to get to. Uh, coming off of the Strike Force Los Angeles show, which was 10 days before this one, um, it was a pretty uneventful show. Little happening, really, that would change things in Strike Force's various weight divisions outside of Tim Kennedy setting himself up as a viable contender for the soon to be vacant Strike Force middleweight title with a submission win over Trevor Prangley. KJ Noons did make a splash in a hotly contested split decision win over Connor Hewn. In the co main event, uh, Chris Cyborg's then husband, Cyborg Santos, perpetrated a pretty nasty knockout of Marius Zaromsky's. And then in the main event, Robbie Lawler lost a decision to Babalu Sobral in a, a decent fight. Nothing really, no big fireworks, nothing really very memorable. And that's kind of the, I mean, there was there was a couple pretty big wins. I mean, Santos's knockout was pretty nasty, as I said. And Kennedy got a very nice submission win over Trevor Prangley. KJ Noon's uh, Connor Hune was a really entertaining fight. So really the three main card fights were all pretty entertaining in their own way. Um, and then the, just unfortunately Lawler was just never able to really get off in the main event. So it really wasn't, uh, you know, anything that was going to set the world on fire, really change things within strike force, but getting back to Fedor versus Verdun in May, 2010, after some arduous negotiations with M1 strike force was able to announce a co-promoted event featuring Fedor in the main event against Fabricio Verdun. And this was of course a big deal. Fedor was seen as both strike forces, number one drawing card as well as the number one heavyweight fighter in the world. Uh, but there were some big questions here. Do the Nashville brawl, the event would be broadcasted on Showtime instead of CBS. So could Fedor still draw after not competing in, in seven months? And and especially after looking pretty human against Brett Rogers early on, you know, was the last emperor still the man? And so there were some questions to be answered. 
did want to mention Strikeforce heavyweight champion Alistair Overeem, who was coming off his own demolition of Brett Rogers, wanted Fedor next, but Scott Coker pumped the, the brakes on that, saying that Fedor would have to beat Fabricio first, reminding everyone that the Brazilian submission master could win, and that would change everything, and which, of course, would turn out to be pretty prophetic words indeed. You know, Phil, to me, this is the worst of Scott Coker. We've talked about him over the evolution of this podcast. We know that Scott Coker is a brilliant promoter. Uh, he's not perfect. And I feel like the matchmaking is just a little gimmicky at times, and it isn't as forward-thinking as it could be. I'm not saying Dana White's any better, but Scott Coker flushed millions of dollars down the toilet with this booking. Styles make fights, and I think Verdum was like 13-4. and four. Okay, yeah, we're going to get to this. Four, he was 13-4-1. and one. So, so, you know, maybe at that time, we don't think he's going to win. But he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's a big, strong guy. If you're going to beat Fedor, it's going to be that kind of guy. It's not going to be a guy that slugs with Fedor, at least at this stage of his career. And I just think it was a missed, missed uh, opportunity to really just, you know, get Fedor in that title fight as quickly as possible. I think he erred, and he should have protected him as the promoter. You know, I usually try to give kind of the devil's advocate, or I just outright disagree with you sometimes, but I 100% agree with you on this. I, I, I think it was a big mistake to have Fedor, I, after he beats Rodgers, and then Alistair beats Rodgers, I mean, it makes sense to match them up. Fedor, or, uh, uh, Alistair wanted the, the fight so badly, that was the money fight. I have no idea what the thinking was as far as matching him up with Fabricio, like make him, you know, have Fedor wait a, a, a few more months, you know, and, and have, and then have him fight Fabricio or, uh, uh, Alistair. I just, yeah, I don't get it. Plus from the, you know, the fact, I, I think the, as far as the heavyweight fights go to me, the dream fight that never happened. And we've talked about this and I think we agree on this is Fedor versus Brock. Yeah. But for me, like a close second is Fedor versus Alistair. I just have always wanted to see that fight and I'm frustrated that we could have seen it at this point. And instead Fedor gets put into a bad matchup with Verdun. I mean, a guy that he should be expected to be, but is really dangerous. It's really, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think it was bad booking. And I think not only Coker paid the price for it, but Strikeforce as a whole, I think, paid paid the price for it. So, yeah. But we'll get there. Uh, in the co-main event, it would be a rematch between former Strikeforce middleweight champion Kung Lee and Scott Smith. As a reminder, the two had matched up at Evolution the previous December, and Smith pulled off the amazing come-from-behind victory to stop Lee in the third round, despite getting just whooped up on uh, up until that point. And now Lee was looking for revenge. Also on the card, and for some reason, not the co-main event, it would be Chris Cyborg defending her title, her Strikeforce women's featherweight belt against Jan Finney. Uh, maybe this is why it was not in the co-main event. It was a curious choice in a title challenge challenger in that Finney was only 8-7. and seven. Not only that, she'd never fought in Strikeforce, and while she had fought some big names, she'd lost to every single one of them. So just kind of an interesting, uh, and that's being polite, <laughs> choice in a, in a challenger. And We'll talk more about that later. This is like SD Jones getting a title shot against the Macho. I mean, or pretty like close, that. pretty close. Like this was this was a jobber essentially, and no disrespect to Miss Finney, but I mean, who was ultra tough and proved it later on in this card. Uh, but you know, she was she was a a curtain jerker, you know, at best. I mean, a very middling record. She's still, I guess, technically uh, active today, and she's got a less than five hundred record. So I think it kind of bears all all that out. Again, no disrespect to her. She's an amazingly tough woman, uh, but 
I don't know what she'd done to deserve a title fight. And, you know, we would, <laughs> we would see that borne out later. Uh, but starting off the card would actually be Josh Thompson. The former champ had not lost since losing his lightweight title to Gilbert Melendez the previous December, also at that evolution card. And he was going to be opening uh, up this card. We didn't know who it would be at f- against at first. It was supposed to be my former client, Lyle Fancy Pants Beer Bomb. And I remember, dis- I vaguely remember discussions about this, but unfortunately Beer Bomb had, uh, div- he had gotten injured in his victory over Vitor Ribeiro at May's heavy artillery event. So he had to pull out. Instead, Thompson would t- would face the very, very durable and tough Pat Healy. Healy was coming off a decision win in his last strike force of, uh, fight, which was at a Challengers event. He was riding a three-fight win streak. As a quick reminder, the card was originally supposed to feature KJ Noons taking on Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, which is a fight I would have absolutely loved to have seen. But Bennett had to pull out for unknown reasons, and Noons had been moved to the Los Angeles card against Connor Hewn 10 days prior. All right, no changes in the UFC champions at this point from our last event. Uh, bantamweight and featherweight champs would be crowned in, later in this year in 2010, so we'll add those to this docket. UFC lightweight champion, still Frankie Edgar. GSP, still the undisputed welterweight champion. Anderson Silva, still the reigning middleweight champion. Still the lightweight or light heavyweight champion, excuse me, Mauricio Strogan Hua. And then Brock Lesnar was the undisputed heavyweight champion. Well, actually, at this point, he was the disputed heavyweight champion because there was an interim champion, which brings us to UFC 116. It took place a week after Fedor versus Verdun, and it featured a main event of Brock Lesnar and Shane Carwin locking horns to deter- determine the undisputed UFC heavyweight champion. Carwin had beaten Frank Mir for the interim belt as Lesnar had been dealing with diverticulitis. Uh, so these two were now matching up. These two behemoths were now matching up to wrestle for, oh, <laughs> when I say wrestle, I don't mean actually wrestle, but you know what I mean, uh, for the belt. In the you're, first round. You're talking about that real stuff. Come on. Yeah, man. yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in the first round, Carwin caught Lesnar with an uppercut and hurt him. And, ca- I mean, really legitimately came very close to finishing the fight on the floor. And, in fact, if the referee, I think it was Josh Rosenthal, if he had stopped the fight, I don't know. that. I mean, I wouldn't have done that to Lesnar because Lesnar probably would have killed him. But, I, I mean, you could make a legitimate case for him stopping that fight. But regardless, Lesnar survived. And in the second round, he got a takedown, latched onto an arm triangle, and got the tap from a clearly very fatigued Shane Carwin. But it was quite quite the comeback victory that you embraced afterwards in a show of respect. But uh, big, big win for, for Brock Lesnar, for sure. Oh, Lesnar totally got that. I'm a big draw, former WWE wrestler sort of um, advantage because that fight should have been stopped. I mean, Carwin pummeled him and Brock he was, was doing nothing. Yeah. Bloodied, him, so, bloodied him as well. And you know how Brock is. When he gets hurt, he shows it. You know, his oh, legs yeah. shake. Carwin just got tired and um, he wasn't able to, to finish him. But, yeah, I mean, if, I think if that's not Brock Lesnar, they, they would have stopped that fight. Yeah, I, I, I can't disagree. I was really surprised that they didn't stop it. And then especially when you watch the uh, Chris Cyborg-Jan Finney matchup on this card later and you realize you see all the damage that Finney takes and doesn't get the fight stopped and you see what Lesnar took and didn't get the I mean, they're just on different planets. Uh, you, so I, I, at least with Lesnar, I could understand. And the, the commentators called out Rosenthal for letting the fight go, like in a positive way, saying, hey, good ups to the ref for not stopping this too soon. And it would have been controversial. Versus, again, the Finney Cyborg one, which was controversial because it wasn't stopped. But anyways, I, I see your point. I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. Uh, but also on this card, which 
I believe I saw from the notes, I believe Dave Meltzer named this like the card of the year, like because actually both um, two of the fights I'm about to mention, Chris Liebman submitting Yoshihiro Sexyama Akiyama and St- Stefan Bonner, TKO and Christoph Shoshinsky, uh, were both given fight of the night bonuses. So when you got two fights that are that amazing, obviously it's a very big card plus Lesnar, you know, and then Chris Lyle submitted Matt Brown on the card as well. So this was, uh, from all accounts, a, a, a very, very impressive card. And, uh, and yeah, so good stuff there. All right, this brings us to Fedor versus Verdun. It took place on June 26, 2010 at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California. On the call would be the aforementioned Gus Johnson, Mauro Ranallo, and Frank Shermock with Jimmy Lennon Jr., of course, once again handling ring announcing. Uh, ring announcing the event drew 11,757 fans for a live gate of $1,066,739. And the broadcast on Showtime, Showtime drew 492,000 viewers, which was definitely higher than what they were getting on Showtime normally. But obviously on CBS, they were drawing three, four million people. So much, much smaller audience on Showtime versus CBS. Uh, the attendance, interestingly enough, was originally reported to be 12,698 fans, so almost a full thousand more, but it was revised after the event. Regardless, it was still the sixth most attended event in Strikeforce history up to that point. It's worth noting that the UFC counter-programmed uh, Fedor versus Verdun, showing UFC 113, which had taken place a couple months prior, uh, for free on Spike TV. The event featured the light heavyweight title rematch between Lyoto Machida and Shogun Hua, as well as bout showcasing... Kimbo Slice, Jeremy Stevens, Tom Lawler, Patrick Cote, and others. I mentioned this a, a little bit earlier, uh, but the night got off to a bit of an underwhelming start. They're going through the video packages and just painting this, you know, just big picture and epic, you know, picture of what this this card means and Fedor fighting, you know, on, on, on American soil and all this stuff. And Gus Johnson's the very last thing he says before we throw to uh, one of the, the video packages is, is uh, basically, we're ready to kick off the night's event at the Shank Tark, you know, which is <laughs> just embarrassing because it's the Shark Tank where the San Jose Sharks play. And, you know, that's live TV for you. But that's a pretty, pretty big miss on old uh, on old Gus there. Yeah, well, I guess it's in theme with the entire night of botched opportunities. <laughs> yeah, there you, go. there you go. All right, let's quickly run through the undercard. Uh, which I got to mention, Josh, normally you and I take like a good 20, 30 minutes to get through like all the initial stuff. And we're only 15 minutes in and we're already, you know, going through the undercard. So uh, this is I don't know. I don't know if this that's a good like, thing. This okay. is like a therapy session where you just want to I guess. get it over with. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. I guess. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we're going to pl- spend plenty of time on at least a couple of these fights. <laughs> All right, on the undercard, 185 pounds, Chris Cope defeated Ron Kessler via TKO, come by way of head kick and punches at 432 of the second round. From what I read in the, uh, the one of the event recaps, this was a bit of a controversial stoppage, but Kessler did not protest, so good on Chris Cope. At 170 pounds, Brett Bergmark defeated Wagner Rocha via unanimous decision. 185 pounds, current UFC fighter Yancey Medeiros defeated Gareth Joseph via KO, come by way of, punch, come by way of punches. At 119 of the second round, that kept Yancey's uh, record at 9-0, and, and I think this was his last strike force fight, maybe even his only, before he went to the UFC. And then in the main event of the undercard at 155 pounds, Bobby Stack defeated Derek Burnside via split decision. All right, on to the main card, which, again, you can watch this on UFC Fight Pass. 
In the opening bout at 155 pounds, Josh Thompson defeated Pat Healy via submission come by way of rear naked choke at 427 of the third round. Coming into this, Healy was only 23-15. and 15. He did have 19 finishes, and he'd also fought some of the best of the best. He had wins over Dan Hardy, Paul Daly, and Carlos Condit. I mean, that's a pretty impressive trio of, of victims. Um, he did have some some big losses. and uh, However, he'd come into this, he had th- won three straight, including a win over Brian Travers at a recent Challengers event. Thompson was 16-3 and three with 12 finishes. Uh, this was the Punk's first fight back after losing his Strikeforce title to Gilbert Melendez in, in December, but he'd won eight straight prior to that. Now he's looking to get the win and line himself up for a trilogy fight with Gilbert Melendez. Huge. The crowd was hot for this. I mean, the huge, uh, just a huge reaction for Josh Thompson right off the bat and a good amount of booze for, uh, for Healy. who he was coming in from the Northwest. Thompson got a, a, a flashy takedown early on. Then he got uh, pretty close on an arm bar from the bottom. Healy was able to scramble out, but then he got caught in a triangle, which he also survived. The crowd was totally into all of these moves. The former champ clearly had the edge in the first, in my opinion, 10 to nine, although a couple of the commentators disagreed with me. Uh, some good striking from Thompson before Healy got a couple, uh, a good, a good takedown, excuse me, early on in the second round. Thompson then got a couple solid submission attempts in, but spent the majority of his of the of the round on his back with Healy striking and improving position. So a nice comeback round for Healy, 10-9 for him. Healy was looking pretty tired in the third, but he was the aggressor early on. He got a takedown. Uh, Thompson, however, he liter- literally flipped Healy over and took his back. It was it was a pretty cool move that I'm not sure I'd ever seen before. Uh, from there, he worked in the, the rear naked choke, and to Healy's credit, he held on for quite a while, showing his toughness, but Thompson locked in the body triangle and slowly squeezed and repositioned his arm, You know, kept repositioning it. Healy gave the thumbs up, but it was clear that the uh, he, he was in a bad way, and after the, uh, the arm was in place, Healy clearly had to tap. Thompson, very emotional, pointed to the heavens, crossed himself, big hugs and kisses from his, uh, and I mean that, hugs and kisses from his... Uh, uh, from his his corner, including Javier Mendez, uh, and then Dave Camarillo, his uh, I believe the jiu-jitsu coach there at AKA. So, big big win for the former champ. And I mean, he was expected to win this, but you got to give. I mean, Healy is just double tough. Uh, so so nice win for the former champ. And did want to mention Thompson would actually get a medical suspension after this card be, as he came out of the fight with a fractured rib. Well, I don't know how Healy wins this fight, but if you play with fire, you're gonna get burned. And Healy paid for it by trying to wrestle and submit Josh Thompson, and it backfired, and he ended up tapping out. He was too close to Josh Thompson in this fight. I mean, this fight was waged on the ground, and I, I mean, I don't know how he's going to beat Josh Thompson at that game. I mean, Thompson is too good. Uh, Thompson is relentless. Uh, he's just going to keep applying submission holds. He's got great stamina. And his heart is strong. Uh, you know, he's just full of courage inside that cage. And he knows how to dig deep into into himself to win fights. So, you know, Thompson survived that second round where Healy had a little bit of advantage. But at the end of the day, I just think it's, um, you know, I, I don't know how you think. Are they going to submit Josh Thompson? Um, maybe that's his only plan. He can't strike with him. But um, it was a good victory for for Josh Thompson, and I don't see how Healy could have won this fight. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think Healy improved his his stock by hanging into late into the third round with the former champ. But um, you know, again, a, a really good win for Thompson that really allowed him to show his full skill set. Uh, but both fighters, regardless, will be back in Strike Force. Healy would take on Lyle Beerbaum the following February at a Challengers event, and Thompson would come back in October, just a few months after this, to battle Jay Z Cavalcante at Diaz versus Noons too. All right, the next fight, 145 pounds. Chris Cyborg defeated Jan Finney via TKO, coming by way of knee to the body at 256 of the second round. As mentioned earlier, with an 8-7 and seven record, Jan Finney, who, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but to me, she really looks like the female version of Joe Riggs here. So I don't yeah, know if you, yeah. you caught that, but they look like they could have been brother and sister. I mean, uh, I guess, I guess, you know, they have a face that's kind of a shape, maybe a little boxy, box face. Yeah. Yeah, kind of boxy, and they both, you know, they're both blonde and kind of similar noses. So, uh, but I, I will say Jan Finney's much better looking than Joe Riggs. So, sorry, Joe. Uh, but <laughs> not, not after this fight. Yeah, okay. not after. Oh my God, not after this fight. Uh, but Finney, you know, not considered a big threat to Cyborg here. She had won four straight, so that's really the only thing that I think gave, you know, maybe gave some credibility. Um, to her, but none of them were name opponents. And as I mentioned earlier, she'd lost to every big name she'd fought. And when I say she'd lost to all of them, check out these names. Julie Kedsey three times, Shannon Baszler, Misha Tate, and Aaron Tuffhill. She'd lost to all of them. She'd never had a big win or, a, you know, a win against a big-time opponent. She's coming in against just a murderer, you know, a ba- like a killer in Chris Cyborg. Nine and one, she'd won nine straight after losing the first bout of her career. She'd won four straight in strike force which included her previous win, uh, which was against Marlos Kunin in January in a fight where she just killed her. I mean, no one had even, like, touched her at this point outside of that first fight. So, yeah. Uh, But to Finney's credit, she did land a very nice right hand to the jaw as the two came out swinging. However, the champ ate it, walked through it, and clinched against the cage. She then nailed Finney with a punch, dropped her, got a clinch, landed a flush knee, and dropped her again. I mean, Finney just, I, I know we we're going to say tough a lot uh, during this in, re- in reference to her, but tougher than, a, tougher than a $2 stake. Tougher than a $2 stake. I don't know how she survived. She got dropped again a short time later. I mean, this was a mauling. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm watching this. And I'm like, stop the fight. Like, why is the ref not stopping this fight? Um, she may not have been out, but just, she was just taking so much punishment and it was hard to watch at times um, cyborg did get a point taken away for shots to the back of the head, which she was apologetic for the ref asked Finney if she could continue. And she said she could. And I'm like, you know, in retrospect, she could have said no. And, and they, I don't know what the determination of the fight would have been, but she could have possibly gotten a win by DQ, you know? And I, I think, you know, this isn't pro wrestling. I think she wins the belt if that happens. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. No, she would have won the belt because that just happened in uh, UFC. Al- Alistair right. Jamarmaling, or whatever his name is, uh, won against Volkanovski, right? And, and uh, or Peter the, Yan. Peter Yan or whatever. Look all the crap. He took a lot of crap, too, for Yes, yeah, for, for winning the route. title. Yeah, at first he's like, no, no, I don't want it this way. And now he's like, you know, parting it up on Instagram with the belt and stuff like that. It's like, dude, DQ, bro, like Aljamain Ster- Sterling, just not, not a good look. I'd have taken the belt and given it to Chael Sonnen. I would have there sold you go. it to him. So you just there you it. go. There you go. There you go. Or in today's UFC, sold it to Colby Covington. Like, that would have been awesome. Uh, but, yeah, uh, not something that – I mean, maybe in retrospect, probably wasn't very smart, but Finney was 
you know, I don't know. Maybe she was so dazed she didn't even know what she was saying. But more shots on the restart, uh, and then as they wound the the round wore on, just more shots by Cyborg, more pain for Finney. Honestly, her camp should have thrown in the towel. The ref should have stopped it. Uh, the crowd booed a bit towards the end of the round, and and it might have been because Finney was just holding on to Cyborg's leg. But to me, it reminded me of the scene in Braveheart towards the end where they're torturing William Wallace before they they uh, you know cut his head off, and the crowd starts to boo and chant for mercy. Like that's honestly what came to mind as I was watching the crowd boo that mo- at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Finney, Finney didn't even sit on her stool in between rounds; like she just stayed on her knees, and the doctor came and checked on her again. How did someone not stop this fight? Uh, but Finney, to her credit, landed a nice right hand early on in the second, but that was it. <laughs> she got those two punches in pretty much, and that was pretty much it. And she was just on her knees and then on her back taking more brutal punishment. I mean, I felt like the ref, like Finney owed the ref money or like, you know, like the ref had a secret hatred for Jan Finney. I, I don't know what the issue was there, but she just would not stop this fight. Uh, Finney survived a while longer, but tapped out as the ref was stopping it after being dropped with a knee to the ribs. And as good old JR would say, mercifully, this was over. Uh, unsurprisingly, Finney came out of the fight with an orbital fracture plus uh, multiple facial lacerations. Well, JR would have said, Will somebody stop the damn match? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's what which, he would have said. which he said that. And then he later on in that match that we're talking about, the famous Mankind Undertaker match, said, Mercifully, this is over. So, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> Good God, they killed him. Sorry, we could do another podcast on JR. Okay, um, I don't think we're splitting the atom here. I think Kim Winslow gets the loss. Uh, she was a bad ref. I don't think she had a lot of experience coming into this fight. Uh, obviously, I don't want to be sexist and say because she's a female ref, she doesn't know how to measure MMA. I just think whether male, female, or whatever, she did a terrible job. And I think that it's crazy that she basically allowed this sort of like, you know, legal homicide attempt. I mean, it was blow after blow after blow. And Kim Winslow just didn't have the experience or the confidence to go in there and stop the fight. Uh, this was a bad look for MMA. It's a bad look for women's MMA. It was embarrassing. And I, I think it's one of the worst referee jobs that I've seen for sure. Um, fight should have been stopped in the first round. And, uh, you know, Winslow should have to pay Jan Finney's medical bills because it's it's her fault. I mean, can you imagine if they did not stop the, well, Gina Carano, she lost at the end of the round. But can, can you imagine a similar circumstance? They never would have let Cyborg beat the crap out of Gina Carano like this. They would have stopped that because it's the great Gina Carano. But because it's Jan Finney and it's Kim Winslow, just an entirely bad look a black eye for MMA and strike force. And I mean, it's, it's Kim Winslow's fault. Yeah. I, 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 you pretty much laid it all out exactly how I would think it. Um, I mean, from what some of the stuff I read was that strike force was having trouble coming up with co- uh, competitors that would take the fight against cyborg. I mean, first of all, this is the early days of women's MMA coming to the forefront so there wasn't like a massive amount of you know female fighters that were ready to go. It is interesting to see how many of them are still fighting today. Cyborg, uh, you know, obviously still active. Liz Carmouche was, which was uh, I think Fan- Finney's next fight. She's obviously still active. There's a bunch of these female fighters that are still fighting. 
but I mean, yeah, it just didn't seem like there was tons of women lining up at a, to, to fight cyborg at 145 pounds, you know? So she didn't really, I mean, really, if you look at her record in, uh, in strike force, I, I mean, she doesn't actually have a ton of like, you know, you have the Corano win, of course, like that's a huge, huge fight. That's a big, big deal. But I mean, really outside, you have her, you have, so she starts off, she fights Shayna Baszler, you know, in, in elite XC, that's her first U S fight. And, you know, Baszler was not a big star at that point. She was never a big MMA star. So you got that. Then she fights Yoko Takahashi, who I don't know anything about, but that's a Japanese fighter, obviously not super well known. Uh, you know, here in here in the U.S., her record right now is 15 and 12. So, you know, not not a big time fighter. Hitomi Akano, who was fighting out of her weight class and Cyborg missed weight for that fight. So she, you know, murders her. She beats Carano in a, you know, a fairly competitive matchup. Marluz Kunin, who's really seen as probably the biggest threat to her, but she's fighting a, a full weight class above her normal weight. You know, she gets destroyed, although she makes it into the third round, you know, then Jan Finney, and then she's got one more fight and uh, in the, uh, in strike force against Hiroko, uh, Hiroko, Hiroko Yamanaka, uh, which she is now she's 12 and three. So, you know, now, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know how great of a fighter she was, but she destroyed her in 16 seconds. And then, you know, she gets, uh, overturned and stripped of the championship because she tested positive for steroids after the fight. But my point being, you have all these names, but none of them are really big threats. And I don't, I'm not saying like she's ducking anybody, but I just don't, or, you know, or anybody's, I, I just don't think she had a lot of options. I guess my point, you start, you know, F uh, Fiona Muxlow, she farts, or farts, <laughs> she fights Kunin again, Charmaine Tweet, Faith Van Dween, Daria Imbragamova. I mean, who are all these fighters? Like, I don't know who all these fighters are. Those are the next ones that she fights. Then she, you know, Leslie Smith, which is a name, Lena Landsberg. I don't know who that is. Tanya Evinger, good fighter. And then she starts getting some, you know, some higher profile fights in UFC, Holly Holm, Yana Kunitskaya, which she won all those fights. And then she finally runs into Amanda Nunez and then loses, you know, loses to Nunez. And that's her only fight since her very, or her only loss since her very first fight. Felicia Spencer, Julia Budd, Arlene, Ben Blencow and then Leslie Smith again. So I, I mean, to be honest with you, like just kind of overall, she hasn't fought a lot of, like a lot of women on her level, not because she's ducking anybody or anything like that. But I think at 145 pounds, there just aren't a lot of women on her level. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like most of these fighters with name value that, that are good fighters, Holly Holm, uh, again, uh, uh, Marlos Kunin, these fighters aren't 130, 145ers. These are 135ers that are going up for the big money fight. But most of them are not normally fighting at women's featherweight. So, yeah, it, it's uh, this is no disrespect to Cyborg. Again, I just I don't think it's her fault at all. It's just she's just bigger than most women. And, and you know, <laughs> and there's just not a lot of really skilled women at that weight. If she was, you know, at 135, you know, then it would have opened up, a, you know, a possible, the, the, you know, the dream fight that everybody would she have wouldn't be able to have. She wouldn't be able to have children, Phil. That yeah, yes, yes. You're right. That was that was part of the issue, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, if she would have been able to get down to 135, we maybe would have seen the Ronda Rousey fight. Maybe we would have seen Misha oh, Tate. God. 
you know, kind of those type cyborg and Ronda Rousey. Yeah, but I, now. but I mean, who besides Amanda Nunez, the greatest women's fighter of all time, like who legitimately would have really been a real matchup for, for, for her. So, you know, it's kind of like she'd run the table in, in strike force by the time she actually fought again. Um, I don't remember the exact date of the UFC closing strike force, but she didn't fight again after. So she doesn't fight for a year and a half after this. She fights Hiroko Yamanaka at Melendez versus Masvidal in December of 2011. So a full year and a half after this, or almost a full year and a half after this. And then she, you know, gets suspended. She doesn't fight for almost, let's see, she didn't fight again until April of 2013. So, you know, that's what, uh, yeah, full year and a half later, or almost a full year and a half later, she doesn't fight again. So, so from 2000, uh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to so say, from, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. From, from this fight with Finney, that's June 26, 2010, she doesn't fight. She only fights once until April 5th, 2013. So my, my point with that is that it's just, there's just not, I just don't think that she ever had the level of competition to face to where it was going to be like, you know, somebody like, yeah, she's one of the greatest of all time, but I, I just don't think you're going to see that 145 division ever catch up to her to the point where she was going to have enough high level, you know, uh, high level competition to really be able to justify the record that she has, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think people who get to test positive for performing enhancement drugs, we typically see them take a long break because it's a, it's a cycle that they've got to come off and then they've got to rebuild and then they've got to come back. I mean, how many times has John Jones fought in the last five years? Think about not that, many. right? Yeah, not many. You know, so I think that gap probably has to do with the fact that, you know, she's not able to do what she's normally doing and then she's got to actually try to put that train and get that weight back. But, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen her against Nunez again. Uh, it'll never happen. Might have been the same outcome, but... Cyborg's the only one with a chance of beating her. That's it. That, you know, basically a, that knockout power. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, she is, uh, I will mention that she split up with Cyborg in December of 2011. So, you know, maybe some personal stuff. You know, she was suspended too. So yeah. she blamed him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe, I don't know, but um, yeah, just, just, kind of unfortunate the way that it's not unfortunate. I mean, it's really not, that's not fair, but I, I just, I don't know. I, I just look at her a little different also, you know, let's be honest. The, the steroid thing is, is a problem, you know, that, that is cause it, you, she got popped once. Does that mean that, you know, she would not like, yeah. Does, did, 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 does that mean that she was not going to, uh, or that was the only time she was using it? You know what I'm saying? Like that's usually, of course not, not. Not, yeah, that's usually not the, the, the process or that's usually not what happens. Did that mean she didn't get tested before? You know, it, obviously testing back in 2010 was much different. 2011 is much different than it is now, but I mean, look yeah, at, just, we could do a whole show. Look at Johnny Hendricks. Look at Jose Aldo. I mean, I'm not making accusations here that haven't been said other places, but um, you know, once the drug testing kicked in, we saw entirely different performances from fighters. Yeah, which I wouldn't yeah. mention. I, I don't know what you're talking about with either of those names, to be honest with you. I never heard anything about either one of those. But, you know, yeah, it, 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 it is. I know that's a cop out to say it is what it is. But in this case, because we don't have any proof of anything, it is what it is. You know, so 
but regardless, um, you know, I'm not sure why, uh, we, I mean, Cyborg was, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why she was not, but we wouldn't see her back in strike force for a year and a half after this bout. Um, her contract expired about a year after this bout and then she re-upped, uh, and then she like said, we would do, she would do the one more fight. Um, Finney would compete one more time in strike force on a challenger's card. She lost to Liz Carmouche. Uh, she uh, last fought in July of 2019, holds a record of 11 and 14. All right, we are at the co-main event. Kung Lee at 185 pounds would defeat Scott Smith via KO, coming by way of spinning back kick and punches at 146 of the second round. Kung was 6-1 and one coming in with six knockouts. Of course, he was coming off the loss to Scott Smith. He was looking to get revenge for his first MMA career loss. After starting off his MMA career with three fights in 2006 and then two in 2007, Lee had only only fought once each in the previous two years, so ring rust might have been an issue. 18-6, and six, that was the record for Scott Smith coming in, and in impressive fashion, he had finished all 18 of his wins with 15 knockouts and three submissions. He'd won three of his four strike force fights with the only loss coming to Nick Diaz, but all four of his fights have been exciting, crowd-pleasing fights, so this looked to be a really fun fight. Uh, but Smith, as the at the outset, came right at Kung, was all over him at the outset. I mean, big chant for Kung early on. He was clearly the cloud favorite, and he was able, or excuse me, clearly the crowd favorite, and was able to weather that storm. Good head movement from Kung Lee early on, and then he landed a nice combo that hurt Smith, who shot in for a takedown. Nice sprawl from Kung. A couple minutes later, Kung lands a, a couple nice knees that seemed to drop Smith, who rode out the rest of the round. 10-9 for Lee. In the second round, Lee landed a spinning back kick that clearly hurt Smith. Uh, Lee wasn't able to do anything with it, but it, it didn't matter because he landed another spinning back kick, and this one looked like it landed flush on the liver. Very, very similar. I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but very similar to the Pete Cell, the very famous Pete Cell mm -hmm. uh, Scott Smith fight where he got hit with that, you know, got hit in the liver and seemed to kind of crumple and move his back towards the cage, and that's exactly what happened here, but that time he uncorked that crazy right hand and landed. Uh, this one, there was no right hand. He was too hurt. And uh, uh, Lee followed up with a punch that drew blood and forced the ref to step in as Scott Smith was no longer defending himself. Great win for Kung Lee, uh, who celebrated with a cartwheel backflip, backflip combo, then pointed at, I think it was King Mo, ringside and showed off a high kick that got a big laugh from the light heavyweight champ. I hated this fight sort of felt like AJ Styles versus Nakamura at WrestleMania. Just like what happened? Like this was not the fight that it should have been at all. Uh, Scott Smith, he didn't fight the fight he needed to fight. It's like, Scott, how did you win before you got Kung Lee tired? You took all his best shots and then you got him in the third round. And actually the second round, you started to hurt him. What does Scott Smith do in this fight? rushes him so let me go right within kung lee's range let me do what i'm not good at which is being a fast starter he had a poor game plan obviously he had tasted kung lee's kick power in the first fight he did not want to feel that he thought let me do what i did in the third round let me do it in the first the problem is kung lee's not tired yet and kung lee is wicked dangerous in the first round so I think uh, Scott Smith just made a huge mental error here. He, you know, he did not fight the fight that he should have. And, you know, Kung Lee, he, he took advantage of that. You know, he just, hey, this guy's coming at me. I'm going to throw my kicks. I'm going to, 
Scott's, I mean, Kung Lee landed punches on Scott Smith and Kung Lee is not known for being a great puncher. He's known for being a great kicker. He's good as a wrestler. Kung Lee is like tagging him with these slow combinations. So I just felt like it was just like, can we do this over, please? This is a bad performance by, by both of them, quite honestly. Uh, Kung would have had to have tried to lose this fight. Um, Scott Smith just did not have a game plan. I don't care, Phil. This fight never happened. It's all about the mir miracle in San Jose. That's my, still one of my favorite fights. You want to know why this fight went the way that it was? You're not going to want to hear. You're not going to want to hear this, but do you want to know why? I think I remember. Scott Smith had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because Scott Scott Smith was overrated. He just was. He was. Oh come on! Come on! I man. would rather Look. feel like he had to take a crap and get backstage. <laughs> I'm sure you would rather, the... but it doesn't change the fact. He had almost no head movement as a, as a, a stand-up fighter with no head movement is just asking to get annihilated. And he, he had incredible punching power, hands of steel. He had incredible punching power. He was not a great submission guy. He was not a great wrestler. He was a one-trick pony. And I really liked him. I really enjoyed interviewing. I loved watching him fight. But how often did you watch him just take punishment and punishment and punishment and then catch a guy just happened to not say just happened. That's not fair, but, but to just catch a guy like that, that's how all his fights went. Like that's all his known fights was basically getting beat up, getting beat up. If it was a high level elite guy, like, like Kung Lee, he was really getting beat up or Nick Diaz. He was really getting beat up. And, and then just sometimes he would catch a guy and, and, you know, and get the win. I mean, that's how he won the miracle in San Jose. He was getting the crap kicked out of him maybe literally. And, and then he, you know, and then, he, and, and then Kung got kind of lazy and, and left himself open and Scott caught him. But that's, I mean, the, the, the Benji Raddick fight, super back and forth and Benji Raddick, again, much respect to him, but not a, an elite level guy. And, and Scott was probably the better fighter, but you know, it, like Scott barely squeaked by him, you know? So I, and the Terry Martin fight was just a pretty quick one, but it, it, this just, you know, the Pete self, the, over and over, this is what happens to Scott Smith. He gets beat up and sometimes he catches the guy and sometimes, and sometimes he doesn't. And that was just, that was, he wasn't anything other than that. If he caught you with that punch, that was it. So he always went for that. And his fights were always exciting because somebody was getting beat up. <laughs> somebody was getting finished, but you know, as an actual like elite, you know, championship level fighter, sorry. You know, he just wasn't. So, well, I'm yeah, gonna, I, I, um, I've just texted Scott Smith right now with your address. <laughs> and uh, he said that he's going to finish the conversation yes, with you. Yes, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. Uh, okay, so that, that being said, um, then we can agree. He fought a, a bad fight. Um, you know, if you're a rope-a-dope kind of guy, if your thing is, I'm going to take as much punishment because I'm tougher than the other guy. And then when that guy tires, I'm going to get lucky. Do it again. Don't go in there rushing like you're Mike Tyson. Because if you notice, he slipped and fell within 10 seconds in right. this fight. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I just, I felt it was just a bad yeah. well, fight. So um, we we agree that he fought a bad fight. I think he bought a, fought a bad fight because I just don't think he, I think he was overrated and just not a great fighter. You think he, you think he fought a bad fight because he had a bad game plan. So we agree that it was he fought a bad fight just for different reasons, I guess. <laughs> I want to see the uh, the rubber match. 
and um, I think I think Scott Smith wins. <laughs> oh, you know, in in this, which I do, I just disagree with. I mean, like, so they fought five rounds, and Kung won like four point, you know, five nine of those <laughs> of those five rounds. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, I just I I would Ch- have been interested in seeing a trilogy. Chael Sonnen won, you know, five of seven. Rounds. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But anyways, well, Smith, regardless, will be back several more times in Strike Force uh, with his his. Uh, is next about coming against Paul Daly. Um, sadly, uh, this would be uh, the last win. I'm sorry. His pre- so the win against Kung Lee, the previous fight, was actually ended up being Smith's last win in Strike Force. He would lose several more after this. So that's unfortunate. So kind of the end of that. And then it would be the end of an era for Strike Force as this would be Kung Lee's final fight with the promotion. The guy that they, alongside... Uh, you know, really their first homegrown star, really like fully homegrown star. And, you know, the guy that along with Frank Shamrock and to a lesser extent, Gilbert Melendez and Josh Thompson, you know, the guys that they really built the first few years of strike force around, you know, that so yeah. to see this be Kung's final fight, you know, kind of, kind of unfortunate the next year, uh, he would give an interview interview saying it was UFC or bust for him. And he would go on to sign with the promotion uh, Lee would go two and two with the UFC, which included a fight of the night TKO loss to Vanderlei Silva, as well as a knockout of the night win over Fr- Rich Franklin. Unfortunately, he would go out on the TKO loss to Michael Bisping, but the aftermath would be even un- even more unfortunate. A highly contested positive test uh, drug test for HGH would sour the relationship between Kung and the UFC. He would end up requesting his release due the, to the drug test being mishandled. First, he was uh, suspended for nine months. And then the UFC actually suspended that to 12 months and Kung just, there, there was a lot of question about the, uh, the testing sample and it was like destroyed before it could be retested and just some really weird stuff. And the, the, uh, the lab was not, um, W uh, WADA approved, which was like the world governing body and just, just some really weird stuff that happened there. And then as we discussed during our previous interview with Kung, he was, or still is, involved in a class action lawsuit against the UFC that's aiming uh, to increase the control and bargaining power for MMA fighters. And so we wish uh, we wish Kung the best of luck in his endeavors from here. And again, you can go back and listen to our, uh, our original interview with him. And then we're actually having him back on, and we'll talk more about that uh, as can we I, get to the end of the show. Can I yeah. say one thing here? Okay. When Paul Daly knocked out Scott Smith, that was Scott Smith losing to a better fighter, okay? There was no other game plan for Scott Smith with Paul Daly because Scott Smith would have had to have hit Paul Daly before Paul Daly hit him. Um, so I'm not blindly defending Scott Smith. Paul Daly put Scott Smith's lights out. Um, but he, Kung Lee is beatable, okay? Scott Smith could have beat him twice. He did himself no favors in how he tried to beat him. That's the point. I'm trying to make and uh, Scott Smith said he's on an airplane to Nashville right now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right, we are at the main event heavyweight bout Fabricio Verdun. Defeated Fedor Emelianenko via submission. <laughs> Defeated Fedor Emelianenko via submission, come by way of triangle armbar at 109 of the first round. That's right, 69 seconds. Fedor was 30, 31 and one with 24 finishes coming in. The only loss being a, con- a controversial stoppage via cut against uh, Tsuyoshi Kasaka over 10 years prior. And that was a BS. Uh, if you've ever seen it, that was garbage and it should never have happened. Uh, so it wasn't really, we wouldn't really consider it a loss. 
Um, but the list of Fedor's victims at this point, long and impressive. Babalu, Semi Schilt, Minotaro Nagara twice, Gary Goodridge, Mark Coleman twice, Kevin Randleman, Crow Cop, Mark Hunt, Tim Sylvia, Andre Arlovsky, and I'm even leaving some out. I mean, just an amazing, amazing record uh, that he had at that point. Fabricio, as we mentioned earlier, was 13-4-1. He had 11 finishes. He had won his previous two bouts in strike force, submitting Mike Kyle and then decisioning Bigfoot Silva the previous November. But this was obviously a huge opportunity for the Brazilian jiu-jitsu master the, as the winner of this bout was slated to get a heavyweight title shot against Alistair Overing. Uh, as they were breaking down the bout, they kind of snuck this in. But not only was this uh, Kung Lee's last fight with the promotion, although at, that, at this point they didn't know that, Gus Johnson revealed that Frank Shamrock had officially retired from MMA as a fighter. And, you know, I feel like they should have made a bigger deal out of that. Maybe Frank didn't want him to. Um, They just kind of briefly talked about it momentarily. And Frank explained that his body was just, you know, he couldn't do what he wanted to do. And at this point, he was a much better talker than a fighter. And so he wanted to do what he could to help continue to help the sport grow. And he felt like he could do that behind the microphone rather than in the cage. But that was the end of an era. And Frank, to his credit, has despite... You know, talks of him fighting his brother, Ken, and, you know, maybe other things over the years. Uh, He's stuck to that. He's never come back. And, you know, we've interviewed him on this show twice, and he's very content with his life and his legacy and all that stuff. So we, you know, our listeners, you know that we have nothing but respect for the legend and for all that he's accomplished in his career. Uh, So make sure you go back and listen into the archives and listen to our two interviews with the man himself. Did Frank Shamrock make an announcement inside the cage that night? Do you remember that? It's, I mean, I don't remember. I mean, it's not on the broadcast, and I no. don't remember that. And I feel like I, I feel like I would have. I feel like I would have remembered that, but I honestly, I do not remember that. Do you? I, yeah, and and I'm pretty sure it's this show. It was not on the the UFC because they hate Frank Shamrock, but right. <laughs> I'm pretty certain he went out there and cut like a, you know a Daniel Bryan Edge retirement promo at the Shark Tank. I know I'm not making that up. It was either this card. Or the next one in San Jose, but he did his thing, and um, I guess I should have looked it up. But um, yeah, I do remember him doing that. And he, he was saying it's time for him to step aside for the younger guys, like like Nick Diaz. Nope, you, hey, you know what? You're right. I just googled Frank Shamrock retirement speech, and I like I'm not going to watch it, but um, it is definitely from Strike Force, and it's him because I know he had a. I watched this earlier today, so he had the green tie on. And in the little like preview box, he definitely has the green tie on. Okay. So, yeah, you are you are correct. He, uh, I'm like checking it out, and he he definitely gave a uh, gave a retirement speech. So you are spot on. So I am uh, I'll, I, I'm I'm like kind of cl- I'm clicking. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, they even got a promo. They got like a video package. Okay. All right. Well, this makes me feel better. Yeah, there he is with his. I believe that's his ex-wife and his daughter and yeah, he's talking on the mic. So I will, uh, I'll send this to you. It's not um, like he said, we're going to end this the way we started. Now somebody hit my music. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sean Michaels has left the building. Yeah. Um, that, that was Sean's retirement. He didn't do that, but it was a pretty good little UFC or MMA promo for sure. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to send this to you and then I'm definitely going to watch it myself. Cause obviously I'm a big, a big Frank Shamrock Mark. So, um, yeah, well, good man. I'm glad, I'm glad you remembered that. Cause I did not remember that. Well, that's all. why I'm here, Phil, for the deep research. Let's move there on. There you go. The deep, yes, <laughs> that's right. the deep research. I'm definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lazing about on my side for sure. So, 
All right, well, good catch. Um, all right, but back to the fight. Quick one, like we said, just 69 seconds. Huge, huge chance for Fedor early on. Obviously, you know, he was the guy everyone came to see. The Russian landed a nice lightning-fast combo that seemed to hurt Verdun, although when they showed the combo afterwards, they seemed to be kind of glancing blows. But Verdun seemed to be kind of like, whoa, like kind of have like a whole, okay, like look on his face and kind of rolled to his back. And, I mean, even now, as I was, you know, thinking about this and as I was watching this earlier today, I just found myself shaking my head as I watched this because it was just such a strategic blunder. Fedor, you know, he, he, I mean, let's be honest, he was so used to just steamrolling through any submission attempts by opponents from their back. I mean, that was how many times did we see that where a guy, you know, Fedor would knock a guy down and then jump into guard and not, you know, he's not worried about anything that guy underneath him is doing. He's just throwing blows. And he's just trying to drop some heavy, you know, heavy shots. And he was not worried about Verdun's jiu-jitsu at all. And that proved to be his undoing. I mean, we're not even a minute into the fight yet. Neither fighter has has broken a sweat. So they're both dry. And so, you know, the Brazilian throws up his legs and secures a triangle on his second try. And he's quickly, you know, he's 6'4", super long legs, very strong. Obviously one of the best heavyweight jiu-jitsu practitioners in the world. He's quickly able to lock it in tightly and easily. And, and I don't know if you noticed there, but he kept check, like touching his leg, touching his ankle, kind of like making sure everything was still tight. He had it in so deep, so quickly. He didn't even need to do that. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. you've seen, we've all seen, if you've watched MMA, we've all seen guys where, you know, they're trying to pull that ankle and get the foot, you know, firmly underneath the, you know, the armpit of the knee, so to speak. And, you know, trying to, you know, trying to keep hold on to that and push their leg, like all these different things. Like he had it on so quickly and so tightly. It was like, he didn't even need to do any of that. And from there, you know, it's just like he got, he pulled it tight. And I remember this is, this is the thing I do remember was seeing Fedor's head, you know, peeking out from between, you know, the legs of, of Fabricio and just seeing God, man, that's turning pretty red and okay. That's turning pretty purple. And, you know, and then he just, he tapped once and McCarthy, big John McCarthy stopped it. And that was it for the last emperor. And I mean, it's hard to say that Fedor looked disappointed because his, you know, his expression really changes. I'm sure he was pretty down. Uh, This would be Fedor's first loss in over a decade and his first real loss, as we discussed. Also very damaging to strike force as far as, you know, hey, there's, this is the draw and now he's been beat. And I think again, proves what you said earlier about just this being bad booking all the way around. Yeah, this was a fluke, a fluke that, that really should not have happened. Fedor caught him early. Okay. You mentioned that he tagged him. These weren't great blows, but it definitely woke up Verdum, but Verdum, let's be real. We've seen this over and over. He's looking for a reason to fall on his back. That's his strength. I mean, he's done this, Time and time again, he's trying to pull people into his guard. And Fedor just fell for it. And yes, he's been able to counter those kinds of moves in the past, but not not on this night. And, you know, he tried to fight it off, Fedor. You know, to his credit, he was in there a while. He didn't tap right away. Uh, you know, his head d- did turn purple, <laughs> which you don't see his bald head. Like, he, he definitely... And can you imagine just what's going on in Fedor's head before he taps? Because he's never done it before. He knows this is just like 
odd. This is not Bob Sapp here where you know you're going to quit at some point. Like the idea that he's going to tap is, is it doesn't even cross his mind. He doesn't even know how to tap. He just did it one time, right? right like he, right. he's just like, is this how you do it? And maybe they right. won't notice. Maybe they won't notice, you know. Uh, so it was sort of awkward, uh, but he just made a mistake taking him to the ground. And you know, boxers do this where they work up a sweat by the time the bell rings, right? They stay warm, they bounce around, they're bobbing up and down. And they don't want to be dry when they get into the fight. They need to be ready to go warm. And think of all the submission attempts fighters have been able to pull out of because the other guy's dripping wet. If if Fedor's head and neck are sweaty, if Verdum's uh, legs are sweaty, he might pull out of that. And it's an entirely different fight. And, and so I just thought it was a fluke. I don't think, you know, Fabrizio was a better fighter on that night, although... Obviously, he'd have a much better career going forward because uh, he'd eventually tap out Cain Velasquez and be world champion. Right. But um, I just that was a bad day for MMA because it was basically like Strike Force's last chance to compete with the UFC with a big main event star, and uh, Fedor lost, and uh, it was just bad booking. I just don't think not that. We don't need to fix these fights. We don't need to protect these fighters, but we need to do everything we can to put them in matches that um, is going to increase their longevity and have the biggest payday possible. And I think this was a wasted fight. It didn't need to happen. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I can't disagree with you. I do think that Fabricio is one of, I mean, if you look at his record, you look at the names of the fighters that he has beaten over the course of his career, I'm looking at his record right now. I mean, Gabriel Gonzaga TKO'd him early on. Tom Erickson, which is a name that's not really remembered, um, on the Don Fry episode on Joe Rogan's podcast, they brought him up, and I was glad that they did because he's just he's not really remembered today. But this this guy, I mean, he was first of all he was huge, six four, two hundred eighty pound guy, super super strong guy, fought. Uh, I don't think he ever fought in the UFC, but he fought in Pride uh, like five times. And I mean, he, he was just, I mean, just a brute of a man. And so for, uh, so that was a big win, I, you know, he, despite Eric's not really being remembered today. So he beat him. Uh, he beat Alistair Overeem by submission in 2006. He beat Alexander Milianenko. So Fedor's brother became the first guy to beat both brothers, uh, beat Gonzaga again in the UFC, beat Brandon Vera in, in the UFC, you know, Mike Kyle, you know, Bigfoot Silva, then after this, uh, after this fight, he beats Roy Nelson. He beats uh, Antonio Rodrigo Noguera. I think he broke his arm, if I remember correctly. Submitted him with an armbar. Beat Travis Hunt. Beat Mar or sorry, Travis Brown, and then Mark Hunt. Then, like you mentioned, tapped out Cain Velasquez. Beat Travis Brown again. Walt Harris. You know Alexander Gustafson and his uh, his his uh, heavyweight debut. I, I mean, yeah, dude. Like it's, this guy has fought and beaten some of the biggest, biggest names. I mean, he did lose to Overeem in their rematch by majority decision. He did lose to Stipe Miocic, and that's when he lost the, uh, you know, the UFC heavyweight championship. He'd beaten Cain Velasquez to become the unified and undisputed champion and then lost it to Stipe. But, I mean, this I, he really is one of the all-time heavyweight greats. And, and so I, I have a lot of respect for Fabricio. I wouldn't say that Fedor lost in a fluke to be honest with you i think verdun executed like he should have i do think fedor lost more because of what he of because he did what he shouldn't have done 
um, you know, if he'd been smart in that moment, he was soon as, you know, he knew that he hadn't hurt Verdun. So as soon as Verdun was down, he should have stood right back up and said, let's go, let's go big boy, get back, get back up. And then just, he should have kept that fight on its feet as long as possible. Uh, you know, make, make, uh, make Fabricio shoot in on him, you know, and, and Fedor had great takedown D and just keep it standing and keep pounding him. And then if you drop him and he's hurt, then maybe you, you know, and it's later on in the fight, you're both wet. You get more likely to pull out of stuff. Then maybe you, you know, you follow him to the ground, but it just, I just think it was such a mental lapse. So I don't think it was a fluke as much as Verdun. I I get what you're saying, but as much as it was Verdun just capitalizing on a really, really stupid decision on Fedor's part. So, but regardless, Fedor would be back the following February to take on Bigfoot Silva. Uh, Fabrizio wouldn't be back for almost exactly a year when he would get that shot against Overeem, although it would not be for the heavyweight title. Uh, we'll just, I don't know why off the top of my head. I know that was part of the heavyweight tournament. Um, so we'll discuss that more when we get to the event. But that's that's it. You know, that's that's the entire card. So let's wrap things up. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Total disclosed fighter payroll of seven hundred eighty-eight thousand eight hundred dollars. Fedor made four hundred thousand. Fabrizio got a hundred thousand. Kung Lee got a hundred thousand. Scott Smith took home fifty-five thousand. Chris Cyborg was paid thirty-five thousand, which included a five thousand dollar championship bonus. Jan, excuse me, Jan Finney took home six thousand. Josh Thompson made sixty k, and Pat Healy made eight thousand. Again, that's just disclosed. That doesn't include sponsorships or any locker room bonuses or you know just hey thought you did a great job tonight here's an extra 10k or anything like that uh, but this was a monumental event for strike force as several things came to an end it would be chris cyborg's last official win with strike force as well as kung lee's last bout overall with the promotion as we mentioned it's also the this would also be the beginning of losing streaks for both scott smith and fedor emilianenko uh, and then frank shamrock the biggest draw, in which, by the way, those those losing streaks would go through the end of Strike Force. Neither fighter ever won another fight in Strike Force. Uh, Frank Shamrock, the biggest draw in the promotion's history up to that point, and maybe ever, was officially retired. And uh, you know, so just a lot of things came to an end. Uh, but there were more questions than answers. Josh Thompson set himself up for the trilogy with Gilbert Melendez, but who is actually, as we discussed earlier in depth, I mean, who is going to give Cyborg a real challenge? Uh, who would pick up the banner for Kung Lee and Frank Shamrock, especially with uh, Jake Shields. He wasn't officially gone from the promotion when they did this event, but this would be the last event where the, the title was not officially vacated. Uh, it would officially be vacated just a few days after this. But so who was going to pick up, you know, who was going to pick up the banner there? Was Fedor on the downswing of an amazing career, which, you know, we would find out that he was. Uh, I just honestly, to, to your point, because of the bad booking, not just in this fight itself, but just kind of some things that even, you know, Strikeforce couldn't even really control. I just feel like this event was just way more damaging to the promotion than than really anything positive. Yeah, when are we going to get to the Ronda Rousey era when it sort of picks up again, those Misha Tate-Rousey fights, but um, or fight. This was a bad night for Strikeforce. Fedor losing is the worst possible outcome. <clears throat> they should have protected better. I said that. And it made the UFC look smart because if you remember, Dana White was so angry that they couldn't come to some terms with Fedor and M1 Global. And so he basically trashed him and said, he's not that good. He's overrated. Who is he beat? Blah, blah, blah. And then he goes and loses in 69 seconds. So it's easy for Dana White to say, look, you really want us to sign this guy? If he didn't last, you know, two minutes with uh, Verdum, what would have happened if we put him in there with 
Brock Lesnar, you know, kind of thing. So I think it just, it, this was a very bad night from a perception standpoint for, for strike force. And uh, of course the Jan Finney, I remember people were talking about that for a long time, that finish. Why did she take such a beating? It made women's MMA look bad. It looked, made MMA look bad. And, uh, you know, the mystique of Fedor was gone. I will say, though, that when Fedor tapped, okay, there were some, like, <gasps> but it was really silent. I mean, people oh, yeah. could not yeah. believe that I, Fedor it, tapped. That was, I, I, I liken that to the, uh, the roar of silence. Like, that's, like, our silent roar, if that makes sense. Like, it just, there was noise, but it was just, I think everybody was shocked. I remember that moment very clearly. And I don't think there's another, I mean, I guess if John Jones, even him, if John Jones were to tap out, there could be some hushes, but I don't, I, I, I'm not even him. I think, I don't think there's another fighter on the planet who the crowd would just go silent when they, they tapped out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's it, I, part of it is just Fedor doesn't speak English. And, and so you can't really know him. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like that part of the mystique is just because he doesn't speak the language that it, it's kind of, but, but yet he does have a charisma to him. You know, he's got that smile that, you know, he shows off every once in a while. And, you know, I've seen him laugh on video before and uh, yeah, he's just so humble. I, I mean, I, he's my favorite heavyweight of all time, maybe my overall favorite fighter of all time, just such a humble guy. And I, and I'm just such a huge fan of his presentation, but I don't think any fighter before or since has the mystique of a Fedor partially because just he becomes this like unhinged like killer in the cage. And mm -hmm. then as soon as the fight's over, he's like, you know, expressionless, but not in a way that makes him look like Ivan Drago, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at least he's got like a smile to him and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just, that mystique, I, a lot of it again is just based on the fact that he doesn't speak English. And when he does speak, it's just very quiet and all that stuff. But I just don't think any other fighter has ever, um, been able to maybe Krokop might be the closest, uh, but just, you know, Krokop was obviously also beatable. He lost to Fedor. So I, I just, I don't think anybody else has engendered that type of mystique. And so I don't think it would engender that type of, again, hushed, you know, you know, Oh my God, what just happened that like we saw with Fedor plus again, he'd won 30, what 31 straight fights or 30 straight fire, whatever it was. He was 31 and one had never lost legitimately. So John Jones is probably the closest, as you said, because it, because of the record. But I just don't think anybody equals that, and so I don't think anybody else would get that type of response. I still think Gustafson won that first fight. <laughs> hey, there's I mean there's several fights now at this point. The Dominic, uh, oh like yeah, the, you know the Dominic fight. Like a lot of people thought that he won that fight. I mean he's had several uh, several fights now. You know at least three where it looked like he looked very human. Yeah, he looked very human. So talking about John Jones, obviously. All right. Well, uh, as you know, as we record this, I actually I want to save this. We're going to talk about this in just a second. I, I did want to mention what we have coming up next. But up next on Inside the Hexagon, Josh is actually going to be talking with Kung Lee about getting revenge against Sm Scott Smith, as well as the end of his run with Strikeforce and why he transitioned over to the UFC. So, Josh, I know you haven't done the interview yet, but I would love to hear what it felt like for him to, you know, get that win. And then just what, you know, what made him want to leave Strikeforce and head over to the UFC. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, so that'll, that'll be coming up soon. After that, we'll be covering Strikeforce Houston, which featured uh, Fejal Cavalcante meeting King Mo for the Strikeforce light heavyweight title, as well as Jacare Souza battling Tim Kennedy for the 
the vacant Strikeforce middleweight title. And there would be bouts featuring KJ Nunes and Bobby Lashley. And in addition, we would actually see the big event debut of Daniel Cormier. So I'm looking forward oh. to I'm looking forward to all that. Make sure you follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod. And you can reach me at philatinsidethehexagon.com. If you'd be interested in getting uh, involved in the show, we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear feedback from you. Anybody you want to hear interviews with, uh, we would love to love, love to have all that. So make sure you reach out. But I want to close out the, the show on, as we record this, Fedor's next fight has been announced. Uh, it's going to be taking place in Moscow on October 23rd of 2021 as we record this this will be bellator's debut in russia this has been a long time coming uh no opponent has been announced but scott coker has mentioned names such as josh barnett junior dos santos and alistair overeem uh but if i had my pick it would be a rematch with fabricio verdun and verdun has already begun campaigning for the bout um but I, there is a uh a very wild card long shot one that i want to mention as well but i'll i'll get your response and then uh I'll mention that, but yeah, Josh, what what do you want? What do you want to see? I really like Fedor, and I don't like seeing legends who fight this long lose. And I know that he sort of turned his career around. He had that really bad run where he was getting knocked out, and then he turned it around, and he's you know he's won, and he you know obviously lesser caliber fighters, but um, obviously it's a big deal in Russia. But I don't really want to see him fight anymore. I think he needs to retire. Um, you know it. Can he, can he get Fabricio Verdum? You know, can we see a, a rematch? Can we find out what would happen if it were, they rebooked it? I don't know. Um, but I would I would definitely take take Fedor. In that. I'm the kind of guy who's never going to root against Fedor. Like, yeah. I'll, he could be going in there against John Jones, and I'd be like, oh, Fedor's going to catch him with the left hook. There's no doubt. You know? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, as far as the realistic – matches i uh, verdun's the one i want i i definitely would love to see that because i just feel like they should run it back outside of that i would definitely love to see him in overeem um i i, I think that would make a second one but my kind of wild card one uh-huh. what about brock lesnar <laughs> he's not under he's not under contract as far as we know he's not under contract to anybody so can you imagine scott coker and showtime reaches out to brock and says hey man one off just a one off We'll pay you $10 million. You want to come in and fight Fedor. The fight that everybody wanted to see, you know, 10 years ago. Finally make that happen. You're both, you know, past your prime. But, hey, as the, the uh, as a wise man once said, I may not be as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. I would love to see that. I think that, I th- which, by the way, I think Fedor would just walk through him because, as we know, Brock, as you said earlier, doesn't like getting hit and shows it when he does, and that's what Fedor does. <laughs> so I think Fedor would just walk through him. But it would be it would be Brock rushing to tackle him, right? And if Fedor can knee him or hit him, he'll win. Otherwise, Brock's going to tackle him and ground and pound him, and he'll yeah. win. Yeah, but that's I, I, the only or, way. That, that. Hey, but also, hey, he's a Fedor is a Sambo master. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't see him on his back very often, but we did see him submit guys from his back. So, so is, is Paul Heyman in Brock's corner? <laughs> for that? Yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> heck yeah. Totally. Paul's Paul is absolutely there for that, selling that one. So, yeah. All right. Anyways, all right. well, uh, Josh, I appreciate your time. As much as we didn't like this card uh, for sentimental reasons and personal reasons, I enjoyed going through it with you. Uh, But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. 
Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at Pit Pass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.